electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. So long rate cuts did today. Stronger than expected jobs report a rebound in yields and a market rally dashed the market's hope for a spring eating by the Fed. And what will what impact will that have on stocks? We're going to debate that. Plus, high-end headache. Shares of RH crushed on the back of earnings. And now there are reports inventories are building back at a lot of luxury retailers. Is the shopping spree in these names about to hit a wall? And later, Bitcoin's big week, the cryptocurrency jumping over 13%, and it surges, helping revive the animal spirits of the retail trading crowd. We'll go inside the numbers. That's later this hour. I'm Courtney Reagan in this evening for Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ. On the desk tonight, we have Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Carter Worth. We're going to start with what might just have been a Goldilocks jobs report. Major averages all rising after news the U.S. payrolls grew slightly more than expected in November. The S&P notching a fresh 52-week high, closing at its best level since March of 2022. That index and the Dow both joining the Nasdaq in the green for the week. All three now up six weeks in a row. The employment report did send rates higher. The 10-year Treasury jumping back above 42 4.2% mark, but also raised hopes that the U.S. economy will be able to pull off a soft landing. So is this the go-ahead markets need to rally into year end, or will next week's Fed decision throw another wrench in the rally? Tim, I'm going to start with you. What do you make of the number? Goldilocks, Silverlocks? Uh, Goldilocks is one of those terms you can you can use, and, and it did have something in it for everybody. I think good news was kind of good news here. The fact that the headline number came in probably a little higher than consensus, the fact that the participation rate brought down the unemployment rate. Those are the things that on the headline, people are like, wow, really hot number. But in, at its core, this wasn't that hot of a number. And if you look at uh, UAW workers coming back in, SAG workers coming back online, that's part of, if you remove those numbers, this was 165.7, 167K on jobs added. Uh, I do think for a rates market that had had the move that we've all been talking about. We've been having the talk for the last 10 days is the opposite, really since that CPI number in mid-November, but the same talk we were having on the way up. Uh, I just think that markets were positioned for uh, a weaker payroll number. The headline was pretty solid. What's it mean for equities? I mean, I think you have a, a dynamic here where certain parts of the market, which are interest rate sensitive, have continued to, to, to rally back. The fact that banks are rallying in, in you know, kind of a lower rate environment and on a higher rate day tells you that I think the market has to understand that labor is not falling out of bed, though. And I think that's really what it comes down to. I think we have a window where inflation is actually falling faster than than the economy. And that's great for stocks. So what do you think, Steve? Is uh, the Fed doing its job? Yeah, I think the Fed is doing its job. The, the Fed's job, I'm not sure what the Fed's job is at this point. I, I think when, when the Fed eventually starts to cut, you're not going to hear a word about cutting until the day the headline comes that Powell cut. He's, there's no sense of urgency for him to send the markets higher right now. As a matter of fact, he doesn't want the markets to go higher. He wants the, to talk the markets down. Hmm. So he's going to be hawkish until the day he turns dovish. 
right? So now if he turns dovish, we don't hear about it until the headline hits. The markets can't be set up for it. But the markets are already trading around him. Two's tens are already trading around him, right? Mm. We've seen it happen already. But to Tim's point, 169 is the right number. You pull out, and that's against the 180 prior month headline. As opposed to the 199 we saw because you're pulling out the numbers from the auto workers and SAG. Exactly. So you have some strike influence there. The big thing was the unemployment rate. So that popped from 3.4 to 3.9. Now it's from 3.9 to to 3.7. But all of that is sort of in the mix. It's all coming out in the wash. So to get to how you started the show, I think it is Goldilocks. And I think the Fed, we're going to have a little bit of a, a blackout period eventually. I think the, the less he talks, we're in one now. The less he talks, the better for the market. Have you ever re- read the story of Goldilocks to, to your, your children? Yeah, I yeah. tried to retell it from memory. I don't think I totally got it right the other day. Wow. Okay. That's, I, I can't do that. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, sorry, sorry to distract you from no. a real conversation here. No, it's okay. Now I'm thinking about it. What did I get right and what did I get wrong? But Carter, uh, what do you think of? the number here today. Was it Goldilocks? Have we now secured that soft landing? I mean, the beauty of a big data dump like that is you can take away anything you want. For instance, uh, the cautious uh, read would be, hey, retail negative uh, 38,000 going into the most important season for retail or average hourly earnings coming in light. Uh, look, uh, you can interpret it so many ways. At least the market interpreted positively the S&P was up on the day. What about the, the, the rates? We were talking about the yield on the tenure at 4-2, Carter, when you're looking at the cross-section and what that means sort of across the board and looking at charts there today. Any, anything exactly. jump out at you? I mean, the, the, the sell-off in the dollar, the concomitant sell-off uh, in uh, crude oil, a substantial sell-off, of course, 95 to 65, and then this important six-week give back in yields above 5% to basically 4%. Um, all of those things, I think, of course, are signaling uh, something is slowing on Main Street. And the only thing that doesn't seem to care about that, of course, is the equity market. We shall see. Steve, what do you think? We're at 4-2 on the tenure. You think we're still going below 4? So I, I was in the, in the camp of the uh, rates falling precipitously when we got to 5%. Obviously, the headwind for the markets are rates ticking above 5. That was the, that was the peak. When, market, when the rates come in, dollar came in, oil came in. So they came into about four and a half or so, had a little bit of a reversion back. But I think the, the rates front, I think we're going to see lower for longer, not higher for longer. And I actually think that rates will break 4%. Okay. And I still think that's a tailwind for the market. I, I tell you what, I, I actually think that the same things that put rates close to 5% largely are still out there. And that, that's a massive amount of refunding. Uh, that's less central bank buying. Look at JGB yields over the last couple of days. And I know our audience doesn't really spend a lot of time looking at Japan and their monetary policy. But to the, to the extent that the BOJ is no longer targeting their yield curve, and they've, they've essentially in the last two or three days really reaffirmed what we've been talking about, I think higher yields in Japan are actually going to pull up higher yields here. I think the structural dynamics of just who, who's in the market at this point. I also just think that positioning went from so, um, so bearish in terms of, in other words, moving to higher yields after everyone had been on the other side of the boat. I think we're just at a place here. I think we're pretty range bound. It wouldn't surprise me to, to get back up to 450 on the tenure. Look, the, 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 the economy that was printing 3.8 or 3.9 in the third quarter, and we all know that that's really backward looking. And you know, the coincidence stuff says we are slowing. But, but the market, excuse me, the economy is not falling out of bed. And that, that to me is why you're getting some of the breadth in the market that you're getting. It's not as much as I think a lot of us would like to see. Um, but I, I think you have a dynamic here where I, I don't, 
Steve's right. The Fed's not going to tell you anything next week. Um, they're not going to do anything next week. Um, but it doesn't mean that the economy is falling out of bed. And to me, that's the exact sequencing and the dynamic we've had for the last year and a half. Because, and, you know, as we said last night and we said the night before, um, no recession is now consensus. Now, that's scary in its own way, but I, I, I just think that the reality of the market uh, responding to economic conditions that are about to fall off a cliff is, is not going to happen. And, and it's also worth noting that most of the jobs came from health care and came from government. So is that, is, that doesn't really feel cyclical to me. Is that a fundamental change that we're seeing in the, in the jobs market? So there's a lot of stuff that we can really dig into on that jobs number. But Tim started off the show talking about the strikes. I think that was the biggest event with this number. That's the biggest caveat, the biggest variable that we're not going to have the next time around. Got it. Well, we've got the perfect guy to dig Ooh. into those numbers. Let's ask CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman right now. So, Steve, how do you read today's data? What does it mean the Fed might do or might not do next, next week, more importantly, next year? And we were talking about where the job growth was just now in the report. Yeah, I tried to coin this term, Courtney, silver locks, but people didn't like it. They thought it meant more about what your hair would look like. But I'm not, <laughs> well, I'm not mine, quite certainly. giving it a gold, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, not yours. No, no, no. Just uh, and I, it wouldn't be mine. Don't of course, quit your either. day job, Steve. But, you know, it's a good. It's a good point. Apex I, 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 do pretty good with the night job, Tim, as you know. But anyway, you. Um, by the way, I've seen Steve's night job, and his night job is as good as anybody out there. So I stay guitar. with that. That's yes, he thanks, does. buddy. I appreciate that. But let me get to the jobs report. We'll get to the music later, maybe. But here's the thing. Um, I think that there were some things in there that caused the bond market to feel like, you know what, maybe this was not perfection. And I feel pretty good about starting off the week with this uh, reporting on this bond rally and pointing out that uh, the kind of cuts that were built in for next year as, as quickly as they seem to come, uh, as seems to be priced in, and as much as they seem to be priced in, you really needed the data to behave in a perfect way for that to happen. And that was unrealistic to expect that to happen. So you had a longer work week. You had that decline in the unemployment rate. Wages were still towards the high side in terms of their growth. Yeah, the economy's cooling. It's not cooling very fast. But it's good enough, I think, for Powell, at least tomorrow, or, sorry, next week, to push back, depending, of course, on what happens on Tuesday with the uh, CPI report, which is going to be very critical. But I, I don't think Powell's going to be sort of on his heels with a weak jobs report. If you'd imagine this thing was, say, for example, below 100,000, if the unemployment rate had, had risen above 4%, Powell would have been on his heels defending, not saying we're going to cut or when. He doesn't have that problem beginning next week because of how, at least I read the data today. So, Steve, when you look at the strikes, and you already mentioned it, when you look at the strikes, do they affect the average, the wages as well? Obviously, they're tick, they ticked up, but as a whole, when you compare where they came from, they're still moving in the right direction, which is lower. So is that blip? How much do the strikes ending reflect just not only the headline, but the innards, if you will, when you trickle down to a lot they of the will. finer points? They will over time. I don't think they're going to be an upward shift in wages because of these, but it, it'll, it'll come in. And uh, by the way, I, I took off 47000 from that top because I had 17 on the motion picture side and I had uh, something like 30 or so from the uh, 
uh, from the auto side. So maybe that was a little bit overstated, but that's that's the number that I've been using. And there will be, uh, by the way, additions next month as well. But yeah, the wages is going to be an issue. I think that Powell's going to watch that. Um, and, and in general, you've got the retail sales also next week that's going to be, I think, potentially influential in terms of setting the growth standard for what's happening in this month and whether or not the holiday season continues to be at least got off on a strong foot for, for, for November. Steve, if we didn't have 500 basis points to know that we're going to have to pay for it in some way and we know about lag times, you know, I, I would make an argument that really all that's happening is we've worked through supply chain dynamics. We've had a reopening dynamic. Energy prices have come down. Uh, so Eastern Europe and some of that dynamic. What does that mean then if you think about the economy that, that has been resilient um, and, and that you know, maybe there wasn't as much inflation uh, as, as we all thought there was? And I'm not going to say transitory was right. Um, but I'm going to say that we yeah. had extraordinary conditions that now it, it seems a lot easier to say they were extraordinary conditions. I think, Tim, there's been an awful lot of politics in people's assessments of the economy. Um, for example, everybody said that the whole retail or consumer boom was based upon the idea of the subsidies and, and the extra cash. <coughs> Pardon me. There was no talk at all about the idea that a lot of people were working and a lot of people were taking home paychecks. So. Um, that's been, I think, when you talk about the resilience of the economy, I think that's been a key part of it. The idea that a lot of people are working, they've had reasonably decent wage gains, um, and now you have inflation coming down, which means that real wage growth and real spending can do a little bit better, but not in an inflationary way. So, uh, yeah, you had this supply chain issue. The Fed is also going to be, or has already, I think, had played a role in slowing the economy. And that's going to be a bigger story, I think, for next year. I think it's a big story inside of the finances of a lot of companies right now, which is those companies that can't, that need to refinance, especially startup companies, and can't do it. There's going to be either M&A, uh, some form of a takeout or, or, or a fire sale or a bankruptcy. That's going to hit, I think, a little bit early, a little bit next year or a lot next year. And Powell has to pivot, I think, in order to get somewhat in front of that. Maybe not in a hard way, but I think he's going to have to pivot. I disagree a little bit with Steve, although I think he's got a good argument as to when Powell or, and the Fed say they're going to be cutting. Um, but I think they're going to telegraph that and tell us, look, we're going to take a line out of the statement that's going to say it's, we're no longer thinking about hiking. That'll come out. And then the Fed will say, well, I think that's something we can think about in the meetings ahead. We're starting to contemplate that. Steve, before I let you go, didn't uh, the, the expectations for that first rate cut fell a little today, today about 45 percent? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Pardon me. I'm dealing with a cold here on the on the back end of it. We um, all are. <laughs> uh, yes, they had they, they, they had been as high as uh, 50, 60, 65 percent. Now they're down by 45, down to 45 percent. OK, great. Just wanted to confirm that. Steve, thank you very, very much. Have a good weekend. Pleasure. All right, let's trade this, Carter. I have not forgotten about you. I know you're still there. Based on what you heard uh, today from Steve, from the jobs report, any, anything standing out to you that you want to make a change, you want to make a trade, you want to shift your thinking going into next week? Well, sure. I mean, look, I, there's so many ways. The market is basically a four-month round trip to nowhere. We were streaking higher in July. Consensus was this is it. The game is on. We will go to new highs. Guess what happened? We plunged, we dropped almost 12%. And what we've done today is we've turned exactly to that July high. In fact, it was a Thursday, it was July 27th, and it was 4607, and today we closed at 4604. We got a little bit above at 4609, but there are two ways to interpret that. A great recovery back to a difficult level and now backing and filling, or 
four months of nothing and the year is ticking away. What really is unknown, at least I'll speak for myself, I have no clue. Do we come in in January, independent of what happens here in December, and do we go into a, a powerful continuation of this rally, or does it all bets off and everyone starts harvesting, taking profits in January, which has happened in the past, is quite weak. I'm in the latter camp, but uh, we shall see. Hmm. Well, Carter, what we have here, of course, let's talk about the small caps staging a major comeback into year end. The Russell 2000 up nearly 10 percent in the last month, beating out the Dow, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq. But of course, you, the chart master, you say that this holiday rally could be about to fall flat. So what are you seeing? Take it away. Yeah, it's been very volatile. And I think you actually bet against volatility in small cap. Let's go right to the charts and uh, try to figure it out together. What we know is in sequencing terms, we've been doing this sort of vacillation for 18 months. Right. The, the, the Russell 2000 plunged more than the S&P, dropping 34 percent from its peak versus the S&P at 27. And we've basically been range bound ever since. Uh, another way to look at this exact same chart would be to look at the sort of the rallies. We've had four distinct rallies, intermediate advances greater than 15 percent and three distinct sell offs greater than 15 percent. And my thinking here is actually after all of this volatility, it's going to be low volatility. And one is right to actually strangle it, if you could, selling premium on both sides and waiting. And you'll see it here in the longer term chart. This is a weekly bar chart picking up, of course, the plunge low of COVID, the massive recovery in 20 and 21. But we're stuck uh, between these converging trend lines. The bull says we break out. The bear says we falter. I think it's just going to stay here uh, is my hunch. Let's look at some comparative charts. Maybe that's another way to do it. Um, this is a three-year comparative chart, the Russell 2000, of course, lagging in orange to the S&P 500. Look at a five-year, um, and then in turn, look at a 10-year. And so the question is, is this an opportunity to catch that spread? Here maybe is the greatest uh, issue or problem or data point of all. Uh, final table, the entire market cap of all 2,000 stocks, it's actually 1,967 right now, is exactly the same as Microsoft. Of course, Apple is even more at $3 trillion. Does it even matter? It's really a beta trade. So if you're bullish, you want to be long this smaller cap area of the market for a December rally if you think that's what's coming. If you're not, you do not want to be long this area of the market. Really interesting stuff, Carter. Steve, I'm going to turn to you because he's bringing up the comparison with Microsoft to the entire valuation of these small cap names. I mean, what would you do? Well, how do you see this trade? Well, the, the market, this is the biggest outperformance that we've seen with mega cap stocks over the Russell in forever in the history of, of, of the two dynamics. People want to buy profitable companies. The Russell 2000, 30 some odd percent are unprofitable. We've seen since the collapse of the, of the regional banks, we've seen people run to free cash flow, mega cap stocks, Apples of the world, the Microsofts of the world. If you go to the Russell 3000, over 40 percent are unprofitable. This is not the time. Maybe you're going to get this gap narrowing going into year end. But I think the longer term is people want to buy profitability. I, I just quickly say that I think we can go through July because we have less inflation. We have less rates. Look what happened today. Uh, the DAX in Germany, international stocks, all time highs. So places that have no tech exposure, there's no mag seven in Germany. Um, I just think the dynamics here, which which include uh, an equal weighted, which has outperformed the S&P since that November 14th CPI by by almost six percent. It's really the same as what the small caps have done. That's what's different. And, and, and again, I, that's why I'm not I, I look at a 15 percent move in the Nasdaq in, in six weeks. And that scares me. A VIX near 12. That scares me. Next year scares me. But I'm not scared yet. And, and I think that that's what we need to think about in the price action we have today. 
Fair enough. Well, coming up, one stock in need of some major restoration. Shares of RH plummeting on the back of earnings. How a potential housing market freeze is giving investors the shivers. A deep dive into retail mm. next. Plus, looking for New Year's resolution. How about shorting Tesla? That's the call from one analyst who's unplugging from the EV maker in 2024 while he's expecting a bumpy ride for the stock when fast money returns. We're back into. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We have a buzzkill on RH, the high-end furniture retailer plunging after last night's earnings report. The company missing revenue expectations and narrowing its full-year revenue guidance. And that's not the only warning sign for the luxury trade. A Wall Street Journal report today saying brands like Prada, Burberry, and Dior are bursting with unsold inventory as the high-end consumer pulls back from peak spending levels. Brands are getting creative with how they offload this inventory, making use of everything from outlet stores to unofficial resellers. I understand some are also trying to buy back their merchandise from some of their wholesale partners. Um, I, I just a, a lot going on here. I mean, Tim, what do you make of the move in RH and then sort of the subsequent information we got from the Wall Street Journal, what we already know about the general resilience of the consumer, but perhaps more weakness at the high end? Well, RH, who, who was standing in the pocket and as it was collapsing around him and saying, we're going to hold firm with prices, that's a football metaphor, which you know because you're I from know. Ohio. I, I, I just, not everyone is so tuned into the gridiron. But, but, but in RH's case, what we also heard on this call is that the margin turn for these guys is actually getting pushed out and that they are going to have huge clearance in 4Q. And, and then they said some things about the housing market, which, which I, I thought was fascinating. We continue to expect the existing housing market to remain frozen until interest rates and or home prices fall meaningfully. Uh, you know, I mean, they're speaking about their part of the housing market. Right. They're speaking about the spending on goods. And, and it's kind of what, what Steve Leeson was saying. I mean, people actually spent on stuff because they had jobs and they wanted to do it. Yeah, there was some pent up and some nesting. It, it, look, I do think there's a bigger issue for luxury. I think RH has a bigger issue because of the industry that they're in. And this was a stock that was ex- that was inexpensive last year at 22 bucks a share. They're going to make, you know, eight bucks a share this year. They're going to go to 20 to eight. And next year, um, they're probably at nine, nine fifty. And that's what was spurring downgrades today. So this is a stock that I, I actually want to own. I have owned it. I've traded it. Uh, and I think I'm going to get it a little bit lower here. Mm, that's really interesting. You know, Home Depot obviously plays in a different part of the housing market with the consumer, but they've been talking about how this is a year of moderation. Uh, that's what they expected after all of that boom in spending during right. the pandemic. I'm wondering if any of that is is happening here for RH. And actually, it seems like a lot of their commentary has been cautious and they've been sounding concerned for some time without actually seeing that concern pay off in the results but it did here this quarter. 
And they also said they have to see a collapse. That's my word, not theirs, but they have to see a collapse in housing pricing. Right. And to where you started off the lead here in interest rates. So we saw them tick up to that 8% mark. Mm-hmm. That was the death nail for a stock like this. But if you look at Williams Sonoma, that's the opposite of this. It's up 70%. Year to date, I wouldn't say that they're a bargain or a discounter. Right. So it depends on where you're plotted along along that level. I think rates are coming down. So I think the light is at the end of the tunnel for a name like RH. It backed up to a 50% retracement. So it stopped right where it should have stopped. And it's probably not a bad entry in the name right now. But you have to believe that rates are going lower, not higher. That's interesting. So you think it could be attractive. You're also thinking. Uh, look, I, I like the company. I like I, I like the stock. I just think it's going to take longer now to see that turn. And I think there was, you know, I think one of the analysts even referred to there was some arrogance with, with how they approached. And they've been opening some new kind of flagship stores and whatnot. And I think margins are going to be under a little pressure. Fair enough. Well, there's a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. A New Year's resolution with some electricity. Why one analyst says to short Tesla into the new year. The details on why he sees a tough road ahead for the EV maker. Next. Plus, media mergers on the horizon, the potential takeovers and team-ups coming for the space, and who's best positioned to come out on top. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Tesla have been in a bit of a holding pattern in the last few months after a revved up start to the year. And one top analyst says the best may be behind it. Bernstein's Tony Saganaki laying out the short case for the EV giant, putting a $150 price target on the stock, 90 bucks below the Wall Street average and nearly 40 percent below today's close. Here's what he had to tell our friends on Squawk Box about why he's so bearish. People believe you know, that growth is still intact. And I I think 24 and 25 are going to be pretty tough years for Tesla. And so you do run the risk of losing this growth narrative. um, And it's really hard to sustain a multiple like that um, if people are doubting your growth. Carter, what do you make of this call? Well, you're saying in sort of stuck for the last couple of months, really it's stuck for, despite the volatility, it's the exact same price it was three years ago. Um, I'm, I'm in the camp that it's better sale than a buy. Hmm. Steve, is the Cybertruck really cool? I think it's, I'm not a car person, but what the heck is that thing? I, I didn't like it when Who I first saw it. Dri- driving in that thing? I, think, I, I mean, it looks well, like I, I Mad like, Max. It's, not, it's not growing on you at all? I'm not getting in that oh thing. I ordered one. I, like, I, did, I did pre-order one, and I think, <laughs> I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at first. Wait, and now really it's did? grown on So you've me. been inside of it? So I, I don't think anyone's been inside of it. I wasn't on. Oh, the, okay. No. I thought you. Yeah. No, no. At I, least the glass I mean, doesn't break anymore. This is. Um, it's bulletproof. Yeah, it could, so, it, you know. it can't, the, the reason why the glass can't be bulletproof is too thick, so it wouldn't go up and down, <laughs> okay. right? But the car is bulletproof, right? You saw it on, yeah. on Joe Rogan. He shot. He shot a crossbow right. at it. Um, I, I think that it grows on you. But the biggest bull case for the stock is all the things that no one talks about. It's the charging network. Everyone has adopted or signed on to their charging network. Mm. That could be potentially another $5 billion in revenue for them going forward. And if you look at what they gave up, right, they cut prices to gain share. Mm-hmm. 
If you had to say the next best EV player, it would be Rivian, which I'm long, but it's a very, very distant second. They've proven to be the only ones that are capable of turning a profit. So you're not you're not really on board with this call from Tony Saganagi. No, and I think that the I think if you look technically, and and Carter sees this too, it stopped you know much higher than 150. You've seen them break that declining trend line. It stopped around 185. It marked itself up, and I think that you're going to see a lot of hiccups on the way down. But anybody who has bet against Elon Musk is pretty much licking their wounds every time. Seems like that. Tim, real quick. Well, I, to, Tony's work is, is fantastic. So when he makes a call and he sticks his nose out there, you have to listen. The car may be bulletproof. The stock is not. How's that? That's pretty good. <laughs> I like that. So, so good. look, I, I mean, what his call is is that EPS is being cut by 50%. And, and, so, and yet, from 22 to 23, you saw revenues grow 18 to 20%. Revenues are going to grow next year. They're, they're producing more cars. But margins are shrinking. We know price cuts have, have been there. I, I argued in the early days of the price cuts, and I'm still not totally sure it's not the case, but that they were, this is, this is Tesla exerting pressure on the competition. They're obviously competing, and they think they can compete on price. They're so far ahead. Um, but look, I've always said the multiple on the stock makes zero sense to me, and at 93 times next year, it makes even less. Well, coming up, a Google gap, the tech giant announcing a new AI model, but it's not all it's cracked up to be. The demo's been causing some backlash ahead. But first, a major move in Paramount after some reports of a potential sale. Media moves that you, that should be on your radar. We're going to go through it when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing out in the green with the S&P, notching a new high for the year. The major indices now on a six-week win streak. A few names also hitting all-time highs. Booking Holdings, Lennar, Costco, Rista Networks, and Palo Alto Networks all trading near those levels. Meantime, Paramount jumping more than 12% on a deadline report that there is, quote, a lot of noise about Skydance and Redbird Capital teaming up on a potential takeover through an acquisition of a controlling stake in National. Let's bring in CNBC.com's Alex Sherman on the whiff of consolidation around Paramount and the media landscape. What do you make of this deadline report, Alex? So the original report comes from Matt Bellany at Puck, who's actually been reporting this for several weeks now, um, that Skydance, which is a small entertainment company, has now partnered with this private equity firm, Redbird Capital, to either try to buy a piece or maybe even the whole thing, though that would be a huge deal, of Paramount Global, or as you mentioned in the introduction, maybe just buy out Sherry Redstone, who was the controlling shareholder, the family owner, per se, of Paramount Global, because Paramount is it has a weird structure where this holding company called National Amusements, which is by and large owned by the Redstone family, that company, which also trades publicly, actually owns the controlling shares of Paramount Global. So you could do an alternative transaction where you could just buy out Sherry Redstone. You wouldn't actually buy out the entire company of Paramount Global. You just kind of buy her and the family out. And I have heard that from others, that that is absolutely a possibility for Sherry Redstone if she wants to exit the business. The problem with that is that that doesn't really do anything strategically for Paramount Global. So you're just handing off the problem of Paramount Global from one person to another. And what is the problem? The problem is that this company, arguably, is subscale in the media world. It's now competing in a direct-to-consumer world against Apple, Amazon, Google, Netflix, Disney. You look at the market cap of this company, it is nowhere near the size of any of those companies, yet it has to compete against those companies 
for great scripted content, for sports rights. So you look down the road five years or so and you just wonder, how can a little company like this compete against these giants? So that's a good point. So we, you know, this is just sort of speculation at this point. Maybe it won't necessarily come to fruition, at least the way that it's been reported here today. But you think possibly there is some explanation for why Paramount may need to change its structure, be owned by someone bigger to be more competitive at some point. Honestly, it's almost universally accepted that something is yep. going to happen with this company right. at this point. The only question now is when. There is an argument that uh, 2024 will sort of be the make or break year for this company, and it will transact either way. John Malone was on our air a couple weeks ago, the big media mogul cable magnate for years. He suggested that companies such as Warner Brothers Discovery, which he sits on the board for, may wait for a company like Paramount Global to go into distress. In other words, if nothing were to happen with this company, he projects that its debt load will outweigh the equity value so much that the equity value may start getting into bankruptcy-like levels. It's also possible that Paramount Global sees an uptick in 2024. If advertising revenue comes back, if the linear TV bundle sort of stabilizes and or if they cut losses from the streaming service so much that investors look more kindly on the stock, if that happens... That would also potentially propel Sherry Redstone into a mindset where she's more likely to do a deal. Now maybe she says, okay, I'll sell the company. I think it's worth a fair value now. So one way or the other, this company probably will transact. The only question now is, that, is it at a higher value than today or a much lower value than today? Fascinating stuff. Alex, thank you so much for joining us to talk it through. Tim, let's trade this. You found yeah. this pretty fascinating. Notice this move here today. What do you make of it? Well, I, I think I think it's game on in terms of the media space, especially in the streaming space, but also in some of these legacy assets with, you know, linear TV we know is dead. doesn't mean that these assets don't have value. It also doesn't mean that there aren't dedicated private equity folks out there who are media focused, like Redbird. I mean, Jeff Jeff Zucker heads up their acquisition arm. Jeff Zucker. I mean, this is, this is one of the most names in- talented yeah. names in, in media history. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have a, a churn in capital who also, again, like this is what these folks do. They recognize the intrinsic value. Paramount, some of the parts, this is what gets back to, you know, looking at Dizzy, looking at Warners, looking at companies. We know their streaming business is structurally not profitable. We know there are assets there that are worth more than what these companies are being priced at. Private equity, by the way, will be able to extract some value. So I I actually think uh, the space which has traded all kinds of cycles, both from the cyclicality of, of, look, media companies were suffered in the early days of, of the Fed hike cycle. And I think that was it as much as anything. Facebook got sold off early. Obviously, we've learned in the last 18 months just how unprofitable streaming can be. Uh, and Disney's worn it on the chin. Netflix, on the other hand, is near all-time highs because they're profitable. I just think that the media space is sorting itself out. I think we've seen the bottom in terms of where streaming has been both unprofitable, in terms of where the analyst community and the market are valuing them. So I think this is a great opportunity. I think Paramount's probably going higher. I don't own Paramount. I own some Warner Brothers. I own some, uh, I own some Disney and that's about where I'm positioned on it. But I think it's a pretty exciting space because I think there's a lot of people picking over the assets. We don't know. CBS and ABC could be in the same house at some point. I mean, network TV doesn't necessarily have to be divided anymore. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think there's going to be a lot of change to come. We all just have to try to pick and see which side we're going to end up on. Thank you very much. Well, coming up, Goose by Google? Why their Gemini AI demi wasn't much of a genius as the big tech company let on. Those details are coming up next as well as the trade. Welcome back to Fast Money. Some AI controversy hitting Google after the tech giant released a demo showing its new Gemini model. But 
don't believe everything you see just yet. Steve Kovac is here to explain what happened. Oh, boy, this is a good one. So Google taking some heavy criticism today, Court, because after we learned its demo video for its new AI model called Gemini, well, it was manipulated to make it look more capable than it actually is. The video was supposed to show how Gemini is multimodal. That means it can interpret visual, audio, and written prompts in real time. And while the video initially went viral and wowed the tech world, it didn't take long for folks to realize it wasn't legit. Instead, Google edited the video to make it look like Gemini was answering those prompts faster. And Google went a step further than that, feeding Gemini text prompts, but making it look like it was responding to audio and visual prompts instead. Now, this is supposed to be Google's answer to OpenAI's ChatGPT, and it's clear from this it's not ready yet. Google spokesperson telling me the video was meant to be, quote, illustrative of what Gemini could be able to do when it launches. But you wouldn't have known that watching the video, of course. Now, this doesn't mean Google or any other company won't catch up to OpenAI, but it's just the latest example of how Google got caught off guard last year with the debut of ChatGPT. Google shares, by the way, closed down over 1% today, but that's after that 5% pop yesterday on optimism around this Gemini AI product court. Oh, interesting stuff. We're all so excited about AI, but does it work how we want it to when we want it to? Thank you so much, Steve. Okay, we're going to trade Google. Carter, what do you make of this? I mean, is this a big deal? We're all super jazzed up about AI, but we also know we're in, in the early innings. Are we expecting everything to work right out of the gate? Does Google get the first thing any kind of a break mind, or it's Google? They should figure oh, this out. The first thing that comes to mind is that guy. What was the guy with the truck? He rolled it down the hill, pretending it was real. Nicola, what in the world is Google? What is Google doing faking anything? But anyway, moving aside from that, I, I kind of like the pattern and I would be long. Okay, Grasso. Yeah, I, I, feel, I feel as if they're playing from a distant second where they're gun shy now. Mm. They, had, they had a poor rollout initially with their AI system, and now they're second guessing themselves whenever they're trying to release something else. And you can't be innovative if you're nervous, right? So you see Amazon and you see Microsoft. Amazon has outperformed. And Amazon and Microsoft have their own chip that they're actually producing and they're looking, they're looking towards the future with. Google, just by this, the initial launch, they were, they were shocked, as Steve said, by chat GPT. And then every other launch, they're going to have a problem because they're trying to dress up the window. And for Google, it seems pretty weird to have them be a second place where there is Google on their own initiatives and the other products. And they're always supposed to be the tech leading arm. They f it feels like to me they're playing from a weak second spot. And I don't think you could play AI from a weak second spot. As Carter said, the stock on a technical level holding the 50-day, which is right around here, is bullish. And I think mega cap, I'm more in favor of that going forward. But I, as far as AI, definitely a second uh, position player. Okay. Well, coming up, the crypto climb. Bitcoin surging roughly 70% in the past three months. But with spot ETFs, Bitcoin having and more on deck, what's ahead for the space in 2024? Well, CoinShares, Milton Demirs will join us here on set with the year ahead outlook. Welcome back to Fast Money. A strong week for inflows by retail investors. In fact, the strongest week in more than a year. And what are they doing with the money they are investing? Well, they're looking for a bit more risk. Our Kate Rooney is here to take us inside the flow. Hi, Kate. Hey, Court. So December is typically a slow month for trading activity. It's not the case this year. In the past week, traders have invested $6.8 billion. 
and almost half of that went to individual stocks. So those self-directed trades, it's the highest level since last March. There is some evidence that they're also ramping up risk. One sign is that money I talked about flowing out of money market funds. These funds and ETFs have seen record inflows this year as rates climbed, but for the first time since May, flows into those money market ETFs fell into negative territory. That's according to Vanda Research. Vanda also says it's seeing traders move out of some of the more defensive big tech names into riskier, smaller cap software names, for example, and then some of the crypto proxy stocks. So Coinbase, MicroStrategy, and then JP Morgan, meanwhile, pointing out an uptick in GameStop inflows this week. That is the original meme stock, of course. It's often the poster child for risk-taking. Finally, also Tesla. And I'll say if there's more retail flow, and that could maintain some of the trajectory in that stock and support the stock price, also embolden retail traders to take on even more risk. This is according to Vanda. They say that's thanks to the portfolio wealth effect around Tesla. Court, back to you. Really interesting move, Kate. Thanks for uh, bringing that to us. Uh, Tim, what, what do you make of that? I'm kind of surprised at the risk-taking at this time of year, and especially when we're seeing you know, the return you could get on a money market fund right now. Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of there's, there's, there are just trends and there's positioning, and, and we're at a place where I think you've had the alignment of less Fed, less, uh, less, less inflation, uh, and, and a lot of folks that I think is as strong as the retail flows have been, uh, I think there's a lot of folks that have missed some part of this rally. So um, I, it, we, we've had a 15 percent move in the NASDAQ in six weeks, and we've had, you know, we're, we're you know, I, like I think we're going to get to 4,700 on the S&P early next year, but um, it, it doesn't surprise me to see the momentum follow through and what has been a, a real relief kind of a dynamic for the average retail investor. All right, well, crypto, yet another risk on trade resonating with retail investors. Bitcoin surging 14 plus percent this week on pace for its third straight week of gains. The coin hovering around $44,000. That's nearly 30,000 higher than where prices were in January. And with spot ETFs and Bitcoin having expected sometime next year, our next guest is staying bullish on the setup for 2024. So joining us now on set is Meltem Demirs, Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares. A lot going on here, um, I guess. Did we shake out a lot of the worries in the crypto market with sort of all of the disasters and bankruptcies and federal charges that we've seen? Or did that just reignite all the skeptics? Look, 2022 was a, a bad year for us. Not a great look. Uh, starting in June, going through the end of the year with FTX, a lot of bankruptcies, failures, outright fraud. We just had the final shoe drop with Binance and the Binance ruling that came out. Also this week, we saw an announcement that CZ, the founder of Binance, settled with the SEC. So we'll expect to hear that news soon. And now we just put in a new high for the year. So I think as we look ahead, I'm calling this the most hated rally. We're going into the end of the year. Everyone's tired of hearing about crypto, but baby, we are so back. Well, it's almost, you know, you talk about 22 and it was a tough year for you. You, you look like you've got a big smile on your face and you've survived it. <laughs> but, but I would make an argument that the market traded like a champ. I mean, if you think about everything that was endured, I, I would have argued that we could have seen, it, it, yeah, it was a winter for, for digital assets and Bitcoin, but, but arguably it could have been desolation, you know? And so um, I guess my question is, is this rally about clearing through Binance and you know, some of the, the, the mishaps, the transgressions, or is it really more about Fed policy? Look, I mean, it gets back to the, the existential reason for owning a lot of these digital assets. I mean, we're probably about to see the Fed step back from 
being aggressive. We're going to see the U.S. deficit spiral to new levels. We're going to see all those dynamics that have had people question why at some point there isn't a reason to own gold or digital gold or other things. You tell me, but my theory is this is more about stuff that's happening in macro that was always the underpinning for owning the asset class. I think there's a few different things going on. I certainly think macro is a big factor. Risk on is a big factor right now at this current point in the market. I do think another component with Bitcoin in particular is price drives more price action. It's Mm -hmm. a very reflexive market. We've seen Q3, if we look at Square's earnings report, um, or block as they're called now, I believe, they had a 2.5 billion in Bitcoin volume. That's 30 million a day of Bitcoin buying just on Cash App. So there's a lot of retail flows. At CoinShares, we track crypto ETP flows. We saw 10 consecutive weeks of inflows for the year. We're up 1.76 billion. That's a 4% increase in global crypto exchange trader product AUM. And we're going into the halving. The daily supply of Bitcoin being mined is going to go down by half. There's new demand coming from the ETF Fingers crossed. Uh, We're pricing 90% certainty on ETF approval. So there's a lot of different factors that I think buyers are pricing in here. But the big the big traders, the macro desks, they haven't started buying yet. So again, I say, baby, we are so back. And the big thing I always look for. Were they buying, though? In other words, is this something that was was starting to happen? Or is this a whole group of institutional investors that have yet to get into the asset class? I think there's still a lot of institutional investors waiting. And for me, the the big leading indicator is when retail's back. And that's when the dog coins start running. I think we have to leave it there. Melton, thank you so much for joining us. I know we're going to have you back because, as you say, maybe we're going to see a really big year in 2024. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I appreciate it very much. Coming up next, it's already time for your final trades. It's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn and start with Carter. A tough week for precious metals, but I think you take advantage of the weakness and add to GLD and SLV. Tim? FCX, I think, copper. first of all, let me stop. Thank you for joining us on a Friday afternoon. It's so great to have you, and it's really been uh, a fun show. Um, FCX, we've seen a lot of resource stocks start to pick up some gas. You also have seen the dynamic with uh, the dollar giving a boost to copper prices, Freeport. All right, and Steve, what do you got? When it comes to Bitcoin, when it comes to Ethereum, people want to own these things in an account that they trust. That's why I own it in Grayscale, Ethereum Trust. So E-T-H-E is how it comes out. That's how I play it. Okay. Well, thank you very much for watching Fast Money and joining us tonight. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.